2: Race to Value listeners, this week you're going to hear from one of the top healthcare revolutionaries in our country. We are honored to bring you the one and only Anish Chopra, the first chief technology officer of the United States who was appointed by President Obama. He's also the co-founder of Hunch Analytics, and he's the co-founder and president of Care Journey. He's my choice for one of our top leaders in health value because – He has the personality and vision to bring all different kinds of people together from all sides of healthcare, payer, provider, big tech, small tech, as a group, and push their thoughts out into the market as one unified voice. He's direct, and he's not afraid to ask the tough questions, and at the same time, he has this level of enthusiasm and energy and passion that I just think is unmatched with the vast majority of people so i really enjoyed this conversation daniel and it's such a great opportunity to have this podcast and meet these uh, wonderful people like anish and then be able to, to bring this content to our listeners
1: yeah eric you you mentioned Anish's company care journey and, and they're really at the vanguard of the value-based care movement i mean we talked about some really incredible things with anish today how their company licenses this data set of 145 million Americans, and, and they bring value insights to the organizations that they support, You know, payers, providers, life sciences organizations. And as you mentioned, a niche is just so dynamic, such a great conversation. It didn't matter if we were talking about vision for the future or in-depth uh, alternative payment model, wonky technical stuff. It's just an enjoyable conversation the whole way through, and I'm really pleased to share it with our listeners today.
2: Well, Race to Value listeners, you're going to want to hear this episode. I mean, from one of the top leaders in industry, it's an honor to bring this to you each and every week. This is our labor of love to you, the industry that's out there doing the work bringing value-based care transformation to to the populations that you serve. We appreciate your support. Please feel free to leave us a review on Apple or Spotify. You know, we love a five-star. We love a review. Please subscribe to our newsletter. And with all that said, why don't I go ahead and let you now hear from the man himself, Anish Chopra, as he joins us this week in the Race to Value. Anish, welcome to Race to Value. It's so awesome to have you on the show this week.
0: Well, it's my honor to be with you guys. You you educate the market. I'm excited to be here.
2: Well, thank you, my friend. And I thought a great way to start our conversation today would be to discuss the need for the medical profession to galvanize around the immense opportunity to transform care delivery by embracing the realities of the digital age. And earlier this year, you wrote an opinion piece in STAT that called for the medical community to develop a more modernized Hippocratic Oath that extends to the broader health ecosystem with a commitment to protect patient privacy and data via HIPAA and beyond. This oath, as you described it, would also anticipate the impact of the 21st Century Cures Act, which requires vendors of EHR systems to certify functionality that allows physicians to connect to third-party APIs without... Costly interfaces. And with this greater access to data, I mean, there's going to need to be a greater responsibility in the medical profession. And this proliferation of technology and digital health tools, as I'm thinking, is going to require physicians to make remarkable improvements in value based care delivery, innovation, and transparency, along with this ethical commitment to guide data sharing, integration, technical processes, and so forth. And as someone who previously worked with doctors, who fiercely resisted technology. I mean, me, Like, I've been in those rooms where I've seen physicians very upset about EMR workflow and have even talked to administrators that have been fired for uh, botched EMR implementations. There's this old generation of doctors that doesn't really want to embrace big tech. But, but now it seems like the b- profession has come around since that time. There's this whole new era of innovation. And it seems like now we're all thinking about these, additional consumer protections that we need to ensure responsible data liquidity. So I wanted to ask you if you could expound upon this idea of a modernized Hippocratic Oath that will guide medical providers and the medical community at large in this new era of value-based care, digital health and health consumerism. And also, is it actually possible to build solidarity between physicians, health systems, EHR companies and third-party app developers in a digital oath to do no harm?
0: Eric, not only do I believe it's possible, I'm excited that it's more likely than not to be the default setting for care delivery. So I'm going to be a bit optimistic in our discussion today, and so you'll you'll discount that as much as you wish, but maybe I'll set this context up a little bit better for uh, us to have a kind of a common dialogue about why I'm so bullish. Number one, what's the problem to solve from my perspective that informed the need to have a, a digital Hippocratic Oath? My general observation amongst my friends, I went to Johns Hopkins undergrad, and most of them went to medical school, half my family practicing physicians. The common theme throughout their educational training, medical training, had been about to synthesize information for purposes of rendering the best judgment and applying the, as best they could, best practices as to what to do to improve the condition that they diagnosed. And all of that operated in a world where people came to the physician for care. Now, that challenge is when you have a physician who's responding to requests from patients to seek answers to very acute needs, combined with the many patients that have been visiting with them months and months earlier than the day at hand, where there may be some shift in their health status, but not enough to warrant the patient to call the doctor to get another appointment. And so the gap to some degree about the digital Hippocratic Oath is the gap in how we think about the 98% of the physician's panel not coming in to see the physician or a member of the care team that day. And the minute you get into that conversation, it starts with the need to prioritize among the 98% of my panel that are not coming to see me today, who needs my time and attention? And to answer that question, thanks to the digital age, we don't have to like manually review all of those patient charts, who has the time for that. We can effectively run uh, questions to the databases that are now evolving uh, with all the electronic health record systems that have been put in place to help us identify a group of folks that perhaps might need some attention. The digital Hippocratic Oath is to set the guardrails as to how we design those questions so as to elicit the best answers. If we're looking for patients uh, that cost the most, as we saw with an Optum study, or I should say a, a, an evaluation of an optimal algorithm, it might over-index to white beneficiaries that may use the system more for the same cl- uh, chronic condition status because they've got better access than perhaps their African-American colleagues in the panel. And so how you construct the questions of the data is software, it's programming. And we could benefit from some guardrails, i.e. the digital Hippocratic Oath, as we look to develop analytic techniques to find those patients that need our help who are not coming into the clinic that day. And I wanted to create a compact where the tech industry, the analytics community, combined with the physicians who are invoking their their wares in their uh, practice, can be confident that the results of their math will mean the right patients get the right care at the right time in the right setting. So that's the idea, Eric. It's a call to action that today is unregulated, unfortunately, and therefore we don't have a lot of quality control as to what the machines generate when it comes to these lists.
1: Anish, I love the idea of this new era of modern medicine that really ensures the necessary level of data activation and liquidity to support population health management. We have so many headwinds to overcome though. When you think of the billions in taxpayer-funded incentives to facilitate near-total EHR penetration among the nation's healthcare providers and interoperability between the numerous proprietary platforms, still is an unfinished business. It seems that there continues to be significant barriers to technical interoperability and semantic interoperability, and and much of these are self-imposed limitations that come from our current fee-for-service model that rewards data siloing. The 21st Century Cures Act is intended to bring about more widespread interoperability and eliminate information-blocking tactics that compromise patient safety. And navigating this handoff between the public sector and the private sector will will be key to meet the obligations of the Cures Act. And it's really up to the private sector to earnestly follow that digital Hippocratic oath to ensure that we bring about a value-based digital transformation. How can we get this digital disruption in healthcare right? to ensure the necessary level of data activation and liquidity to support population health management. Will data blocking issues by EHR companies eventually be addressed? And will the Fire interoperability standards ultimately deliver on that promise of widespread data exchange with API-led connectivity?
0: Yes, 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 and yes, Daniel. And the, the good news here is, while I've been optimistic for a decade, it does feel like we're recording in calendar year 2022, we're undergoing a sea change in the operations of information flows at just the right time. And so allow me to maybe take a step back in history to get to the current and why I'm confident moving forward. The original policies around the billions of dollars for the High Tech Act had a couple of core assumptions built in. Assumption number one, we had a market failure in the adoption rate of electronic health records that had a lot more to do with market dynamics in terms of the way the economic uh, incentives operated uh, as it did the technical gaps because somehow healthcare was sort of different, if you will, from the rest of the internet economy, for lack of a better term. And the reality is that first assumption – that the market dynamics, the market failure that failed to reward uh, the adoption of electronic health records had largely been the result of a fee-for-service system that didn't financially reward providers from coordinating the care in between the visits. And more importantly, to some degree, it penalized uh, integrated delivery networks who were keen to have one clinical experience to have the unfortunate competitive pressures such that if they were to share all that information, it would be easier for patients to leave said networks. So we did have an economic problem at the core, which manifests itself in technology gaps. You fast forward a decade and we've solved effectively the adoption problem. The subsidies did have the effect of driving an insane hockey stick of growth, especially amongst ambulatory physicians. However, the second part of the equation was supposed to happen simultaneously and didn't happen, unfortunately, at the pace we would have loved. And that is to fix the underlying incentives in the system. So we would subsidize technology adoption and shift the demand signal to value-based care If we were successful in the timing of the demand for value-based care, all the doctors and hospital administrators that were writing checks to the electronic health record companies would have prioritized naturally interoperability because it would reward sharing information across boundaries. Could you imagine a Medicare ACO that has 50 plus EHRs within its fragmented, clinically integrated network? Not wanting to prioritize the sharing of electronic health information to figure out whether patients have their blood pressure under control. You would imagine if I were in a risk model, I would on my own ask for these features. So the delay in the demand signal for value based care resulted in the deprioritization in the market for interoperability while we pushed for the adoption of technology. Are we at the point where there's enough natural market demand for value-based care delivery tech? Probably not yet, but it's much better than it was a decade ago. But we do have a regulatory environment that got a little bit ahead of its skis. So back in 2017, right after the Cures Act, the National Coordinator for Health IT convened uh, a bit of a dialogue about where we need to go with the Cures Act, which had a lot of regulatory muscle. It had a very clear goal that we would have a- application programming interfaces amongst all these EHR systems and other healthcare IT systems to communicate a common a set of clinical information in an open language, that this should be available not just to individual patients, which had been the first priority because HIPAA gives individuals the right of access to their own information, but to start to reuse that information for value-based care or other quality initiatives. And so ahead of the time, over the last four or five years, the government has been pushing the EHR vendors almost before the market demanded it, that they develop these sort of population health capabilities. Thankfully, we're now entering the period where all of that regulatory push is reaching the market. The Cures Act electronic health record requirements to move the single patient fire API, which is how Apple Health can communicate with Epic and Cerner and Athena and McKesson and all the other firms in one voice with no integration fee and custom connectivity and big administrative burdens to the doctor, to the patient, to the IT companies, the way that rollout took place, that plug-and-play approach, is now coming to population health and, according to the regulations, must be available to every doctor on a certified system no later than December 31 of this year. And, and We're waiting on the final CMS rule, but it looks like September 30th. Of 2023 will be the deadline for doctors in value-based care arrangements to adopt that CureZac technology. So, if I were to summarize, we had a market failure. It's not quite corrected, but it's moving in the right direction. With a little bit of ahead of our skis regulatory requirement that's meeting us now in the fall of 23, spring of 20 uh, fall of 22, spring of 23, to offer value-based care organizations, a dramatically cheaper plug and play approach to connecting up the medical records for their population, for quality, for care coordination, risk adjustment, you name it. So I'm pretty bullish, but right now, I would argue of your listeners, less than 10% are aware of this capability, have been trained on this capability, have put into production this capability. So that's partly why I was eager to get with you guys today.
2: Well, Anish, I I do share in your optimism. And as we think about this promise of widespread data exchange and value-based care delivery, I can't help but think about the parallels with the consumer banking industry. I mean, why is it we can run our entire financial lives with a few smartphone apps, a couple of plastic cards, and an ATM network – While so many of our interactions with the healthcare system still rely on phone calls, copiers, fax machines, and even the occasional multi part form. And why is it the routine exchange of healthcare information is still so difficult compared with the routine exchange of financial information? You know, in the 90s and early 2000s, there was this emergence of internet banking that brought digital uh, channels to every banking customer, starting with the presentation of a general ledger. And that eventually led to more consumer oriented transactions that anticipated those demand signals and opened up an array of possibilities that were never thought possible before the digital transformation took place. And the banking industry was um, able to solve some of those foundational interoperability issues that healthcare still seems to struggle with. And we've talked about how healthcare needs to come to an agreement on standard methods of information sharing and overcome the fee for service mentality regarding uh, patient information as a competitive advantage to be jealously guarded while also overcoming this fragmented reimbursement and system that doesn't encourage interoperability but you know I'm thinking as we tr- do transform our healthcare system towards this idealized consumer centric digitally enabled model You know, I wanted to ask you, you know, what lessons can we learn from the consumer banking industry that made this transition happen much more seamlessly?
0: My uh, cousin is the uh, Consumer Financial Protection Bureau head. His name is Rohit Chopra. And uh, around the same time we did the High Tech Act in the Obama administration, which was 2009, we did the Dodd-Frank legislation for the banking sector in 2010. In both examples, we had a principle that the consumer had the right to their information, could share it with whomever and what applications of their choice. The High Tech Act, of course, had regulations on day one meaningful use one, meaningful use two, meaningful use three, Cures Act. So we've had three, now four rounds of regulatory action in the decade since the high tech act and you know where we are in dodd frank guess how many regulations have been written to enshrine that the consumer could have application access to their banking data and share it with any app they choose any guess eric if we had four regulatory cycles on the healthcare side how many do they have in the banking side
2: i have no idea (laughs)
0: zero wow so this is a funny story. Uh, in the Obama administration, we had uh, Richard Cordray running the, protect, the CFPB, and he commented that the industry should get its act together on its own, that the government will regulate as a last resort. We have the authority. We never finalize the regulations. And by and large, you know, applications like Mint.com, many of us use, uh, could connect to the banking systems and there wasn't a quote unquote information blocking problem well if i recall correctly it was the spring of 2015 i believe jp morgan decided to cut off mint.com now they did so i think for the right reasons for security purposes the way the mint.coms of the world accessed our records is we kind of gave our username and passwords to mint.com. They stored it, and then they kind of emulated us logging in through the portal and then scraped all of our data and put it into the application. That is not the most secure way of a transaction of that sort. That original screen scraping technology couldn't make the difference between you logging into your own system to pull your account information into a third-party app, or a Russian hacker that may have harvested your credentials and used it to pull your information out into more nefarious purposes. So JP Morgan said, we're going to cut off what was called screen scraping access because we want to move to a more modern API-based approach. Well, when they first cut it off. They didn't really offer the better and more secure API option. So the users of Mint were angry. And a day or two after this happened, supposedly, I wasn't in the room, obviously, but uh, Richard Cordray called JP Morgan and said, do you need me to regulate you to turn on this feature? Or will you figure this out? And Eric, within 90 days... J.P. Morgan and a coalition of other banks formalized the Fire API equivalent for banking and made that available to increase the security and privacy protections of a functional transmission of consumer data into third-party applications. It's 2022, Eric. And there still isn't a regulation on the books that mandates banks do this. And yet you started your question by saying, gosh, the banking industry is doing it. So there's something in the culture of the healthcare industry, the business side of healthcare, that reaches to the minimum necessary for compliance. And that unfortunate reality is why we keep having to have the government micromanage the rules to micromanage the industry to move the data out the door. And that is, from my perspective, frustrating. If value-based care became the dominant delivery model, we wouldn't have this problem. We would have had an industry that would have gotten its act together in a little bit more self-organized fashion and would have come to the regulators with the answers to these questions for scale. And I am confident that as we move into this next decade of value-based care and we feel the pressure of the trust fund and the need for quality improvement, that it will be inevitable. We will flip this market failure into a much more rational economic model where early adopters invest to make the systems better, the regulators scale what works, and we all benefit from the improvements in the IT systems. And this Cures Act upgrade represents the beginning chapter of this better decade.
1: Anish, I love the the imagery you paint here, and just the the context that you bring to this. It's, it just adds so much clarity. and And we've had such a great conversation nationally on information empowerment and consumerism in healthcare. And with this new wave of tech enabled consumerism, our patients will need access to pricing information that's going to help them make smarter decisions you know for too long we've been left in the dark when it comes to the cost of medical treatments and procedures uh, even really intelligent long-term healthcare professionals really struggle with the pricing side of uh, when they're the patient and uh, earlier this summer you and sima verma wrote an opinion piece in stat about the new price transparency regulations that took effect on July 1st and and building on a 2021 trump era requirement that hospitals publicly list their negotiated prices the new federal rules will require employers, most group health plans, and individual marketplace plans to post prices for a set of shoppable services, everything from maternity care to lab tests to prescription drugs, and that will include all medical services in 2023. To make this information more meaningful, next year insurers will also have to provide individual specific cost estimates tailored to their specific coverage plans, as well as the person's progress on their deductible. At face value, you know, these transparency regulations lay the foundation for a market-based healthcare system, and they represent a dawn of enlightenment for patients and the physicians who help them coordinate their care and policymakers. But we're talking about, as you've mentioned, a healthcare system that kind of has this culture of doing minimal necessary, a compliance requirement approach, you know, legislation, all of these, uh, all of these challenges that that go along with this significant inertia that we have, are you optimistic that the regulations will actually bring about greater price transparency to drive value based competition, to reduce costs and improve quality?
0: Of course, I'm optimistic, but let me, uh, without just being Pollyannish for a moment, let me put some context here. The move to transparency had, in my view, been animated by a perception that consumers will benefit from price information. When the economists who've been studying this for years have more evidence than you'd want to read, that you can tell a consumer that the hospital, the surgeon wants to you know, perform that heart transplant in or that uh, heart surgery and has the highest mortality rate as I believe an economist in Pennsylvania had researched and they still go. So it's a complicated uh, story about a consumer shopping on their own. I have long held the view that we will be entering a new era where health information fiduciaries will be assigned by me and my loved ones to help interpret all of this information to guide me to the most appropriate setting or physician or uh, clinic location to get my health needs met. That that health information fiduciary, in my view, is best served through my value-based care network. That's my dream. We'll come back to that dream momentarily. So what is it that the regulations have done? While minimum necessary has been the case in interoperability, I'm gonna suggest to you that it's slightly the opposite in price transparency. If you look at the data, we were in the middle of the pandemic with incredible pressure across hospitals all over the country to include a requirement that they disclose their prices without any technical guidance. The early reports were, and I think the media narrative remains, that hospitals didn't do it. They didn't disclose their prices. Care Journey has a partnership with a company called Turquoise Health, and they uh, began scraping these files and we mashed it up with the CMS public data and as of May of 2022, if you looked at the market of hospitals by the amount of Medicare revenue that they charge, the 60 some odd percent, fully uh, approaching two thirds, it, it it's uh I think it's 66 percent. I have to go back to my exact numbers, but north of 60 percent and likely 66 percent at the time had published meaningful price transparency information, even without technical requirements explaining how to do it, and even though staffs were incredibly busy caring for people in this incredibly difficult pandemic. So to have 60 plus percent of the uh, hospitals sorted by their volume of Medicare patients, that tells me that the industry not only embraced uh, these regulations, but actually uh, uh, met the objective. Now, July 1 of 2022 was a special year, special moment, because CMS in the buildup to the hospital rule went much deeper on the payer rule, which, by the way, applies to employers, self insured employers, I should say, uh, group plans, and of course, the um, uh, Affordable Care Act plans. So the commercial plans all had to disclose in very technically specific ways, there are prices at the 10 NPI level, which this audience understands how that level of detail matters. And unbelievably, within days and weeks of the July 1 deadline, an overwhelming share of employers and plans went live. Now the hard work is to ingest all of that information and organize it for uh, improving that fiduciary function of routing people to the best value option in front of them. But I believe and I have faith in our vibrant and competitive technology economy, Care Journey, by the way, will be very active in this space, just to be disclosing some of that, to be helpful in converting this raw information into meaningful guidance that in the hands of a fiduciary will assist families to find the best quality care. Daniel, I don't know, I don't recall if you guys have interviewed uh, my brother from another mother, Todd Park, who, and his his, uh, actual brother, uh, Ed Park, co-founded Devoted Health, but I love them dearly as I love Farzad and our whole gang that was very active in the Obama administration. The key insight here is that if you look at this concept of a fiduciary. There are clinical teams all over America that are already delivering incredible care, population health wise. If we simply packaged up the pockets of these best practices and scaled them nationwide, we probably would cut two to three percentage points of GDP growth in terms of healthcare inflation, healthcare relative to GDP growth. And if I do the math right, you only need to get to, I think, 1% less or 2% less the current healthcare inflation rate to get to GDP plus zero. And if we start to get to GDP minus, we can really turn the tide on what is really an economic drag on our innovation engine and improve quality. So a health information fiduciary equipped with price and quality information should help us improve that patient matching of, for people like me, going to doctors like so-and-so in this community will help me achieve my health objectives. I'm so bullish that that is a very realistic possibility. And even if it's not in a payment model that fully rewards it, although it should be, uh, I do believe that kind of fiduciary function will make a big difference in the system.
2: Well, Anish, we've talked a a lot about the different things that are going to be needed to win this race to value. I mean, we have to have data flow, interoperability, consumer-driven innovation, price transparency. One thing we haven't talked about is also the need for clinically relevant analytics for value-based networks to acquire so they can succeed in care delivery transformation. And I'm really impressed with what your company is doing, uh, Care Journey, and providing clinically relevant insights around network design and management, care model management, patient risk segmentation, spend and utilization trends. You look at network integrity, opportunities to impact low-value care, really assessing the entire spectrum of uh, performance across the acute and post-acute care settings. And your company has licensed the entire data set from CMS for Medicare Advantage, Medicare Medicaid claims data accounting for 145 million Americans and is able to leverage this massive asset to provide open data that can allow the value ecosystem to take advantage of this research to improve care delivery. Can you provide an overview of your analytics model and how it supports payer provider and life sciences organizations across the country and achieving their value-based transformation goals? Also, can you maybe provide a couple of use cases for how, your analytics platform can help ACOs with network design, performance management, and clinical excellence.
0: Well, Eric, thank you so much for that introduction to our firm. I, I greatly appreciate that. I will say the following The backstory here is that in the Affordable Care Act, there were provisions tied to expanding access and provisions tied to improving performance of the system as a whole. The latter is where I put my heart and soul on the role of technology, data, and innovation. Obviously, we needed that in the expanding access part, but that was much more about building up the rules and regulations for a network of uh, health plans that could meet uh, consumer protection and and access. But On the delivery reform side, one of the most important provisions among many was uh, Section 10332, the purpose of which was to release Medicare data for provider performance measurement. Now here's the unbelievable sticky wicket walking into the Obama administration. To my knowledge, the reasons the Medicare program kept all of this information hidden from the public was a policy on the books that deemed Accessing the Medicare files, the administrative transaction data, would potentially put physician salaries in the public domain. You could infer how much money a doctor made based on how much money Medicare paid them. And It was weird. A very bipartisan act of Congress that led the USAspending.gov, you could look up exactly how much money the US government pays for any other good or service. I can look up Northrop Grumman and how much we're spending in the Defense Department by contract value and all whole range of areas. But for the biggest chunk of transactional information about the performance of health delivery in America, it was prohibited for the public to access it. Now, this was a day one Obama administration priority separate from the Affordable Care Act, meaning my office, the chief technology officer, was created by President Obama in an executive memorandum that he issued calling for a more open and transparent government, which meant releasing data held by the government to the American people. If it was foia it should have been made publicly accessible. And to me, the Medicare files, and at the time it was the Part A, the Part D, and the Part B linked longitudinal files where you could sort of start study a patient's journey through the healthcare system. That had to be made public. Now, obviously, there's sensitive personal health information in there, so we kind of have to put privacy walls in place. And so CMS ultimately came up with a program that said we would allow for-profit, non-profit academic researchers wishing to access all of that linked longitudinal data for purposes of provider performance measurement and more if you meet certain privacy Processes, and you have a research protocol that meets the CMS uh, standards. Well, I had expected when I was in the government that these policies would have uh, ushered in just hundreds of entrepreneurs and innovators, if not thousands, uh, lining up to make sense of this information to figure out who the best performing cardiologists are and who the best primary care doctors are for patients with multiple chronic conditions. Surprisingly, there were not nearly as many companies or organizations that were accessing this information. Care Journey, uh, obviously the company I co-founded, had been absolutely committed to making the best use of that publicly available data and ran right through the front door when Andy Slavitt opened it up in 2015. And after a couple of years of back and forth on research access, we uh, were granted permission to basically tap all of that data. The Trump administration added the Medicare Advantage and the Medicaid encounters data. So now to your point, we've got all of the public data available for this purpose. Our view is really simple. For every group of people in America, if you can cluster them into clinically relevant cohorts, can help. we can kind of do a Dartmouth Atlas style variation analysis for patients within certain clinical conditions and looking at their journey over time. So we basically are looking at a Dartmouth Atlas-like approach of the variation that we see in the delivery system to identify where the best practices exist, which physician groups and ACO networks do a better job helping people who are pre-diabetic forestall diabetes uh, in terms of being active in, in the work that they do, or in making sure that complex, chronically ill, or frail elderly our most precious members of our family who struggle, that they get the best care that avoids unnecessary hospitalization or ED visits. Our thesis was to mine the data for purposes of making sure everyone knows where the highest value doctors, facilities, and networks are in the context of well-defined, publicly accessible cost and outcomes measures. And we have more of a wholesaler philosophy, Eric, Care Journey is not going to be calling up the New York Times and publishing information about the performance of the healthcare uh, system per se. We want our members, uh, many of whom are active listeners of your show, have been guests on your show, who take the information we publish and compete in the market to find the best doctors where they wish to grow, to organize benchmarks, to spur improvement in areas where they can do better and to figure out as a country, what interventions seem to have the highest return when applied on a given population. So that construct, Eric, is an ever evolving and growing need to have, I would call it like a multi-stakeholder approach to the problem. And our view is openness. The same information I make available to network A is also available to network B, C, D, E and F and let the market compete on its use.
1: Anish, I really love that vision and and appreciate you sharing that. It's nice to get a glimpse into what your plans are. Uh, I'd like to shift gears a little bit and talk about alternative payment models and the future of value-based care now. We know that the Biden administration aims to have all Medicare fee-for-service beneficiaries in an accountable care relationship by 2030. And this goal would not only aim to have all beneficiaries in value-based care arrangements, but for them to be in care arrangements where their needs are holistically assessed and their care is coordinated within a broader total cost of care system. This strong positive relationship between ACO attribution and improved care delivery continues to be proven out in the data as illustrated in a recent care journey analysis showing that Medicare patients enrolled in value-based care arrangements were nearly two times more likely to get mammograms. Your claims data have also shown that ACLs do a better job of reducing avoidable expenses than providers who aren't enrolled in an ACO. The metrics used to measure this included preventable hospitalizations, avoidable emergency department visits, post-acute care utilization, and so on. They all show that ACOs are outperforming their counterparts. With this data 2030 goal by CMS to scale APM penetration, An additional 30 million beneficiaries could be attributed to ACOs and other types of advanced APMs. All that said, you've previously stated that your biggest disappointment as as chief technology officer for the Obama administration was the pace of value-based care adoption, since we should be much further along than we are today. Given the positive correlation we see in the data backing ACO models, along with that aggressive goal to increase beneficiary attribution by 2030, will we finally get to the point where we see an industry wide impact on unnecessary expenditures with higher primary care utilization to achieve a more idealized overall cost reduction and population health impact in our country
0: it is inevitable daniel and i will ask you a question uh, in the in the spirit of health equity and underserved populations are the dual eligibles higher Enrollment rates in ACO or lower enrollment rates in ACO relative to those who reside maybe in wealthier neighborhoods? Just out of curiosity, who do you think is getting access to value-based care today? Oh, I think it's the wealthier neighborhoods. So we have a weird dynamic. Basically, if you are poor or reside in, in areas that are underserved, you're choice for value-based care really is to flip to MA and hope that the MA plan coordinates a value-based care model on your behalf. So we see higher enrollment rates in MA. But if you remain in fee-for-service with your core Medicare rights in tow, you have the lowest ACO enrollment rates of any of these sort of cohorts, if you will. And that absolutely, A, it was a shock, To me, I guess intuitively, I kind of worried that the data would show that, and I was sort of anxious about the answer when we asked the question. But it tells me that the 2030 goal couldn't come soon enough, and that the all-hands-on-deck philosophy that the CMS team has put forward gives me hope and confidence that we're going to reverse this a little bit. We have had a very paternalistic view in value-based care, that the way we predominantly run the programs are sort of a handshake between CMS and the physician network on attribution. And we have fancy algorithms and formulas to figure out what that looks like. And it's not clear what the voice of the patient is in that process. To my knowledge, the voice of the patient is a letter that gets sent to them originally from... The practice and now from CMS directly with some legalese about data sharing and their rights to opt out. The more frustrating point is that if I were shopping for my mom and dad every open enrollment period, right, uh, they have the opportunity to switch to Medicare Advantage and they could stay in fee for service. Never in the last five to six years. Has the broker community or anyone in that process told my mom and dad, oh, if you stay in fee-for-service and you know you work with Dr. X, you're in a Medicare ACO and you get these benefits. And then these benefits will help you receive the kind of coordinated experience that you want. No, there's no transparency around this. There's no voice of the patient in the Medicare open enrollment process. There's no knowledge about how I can participate in this. Have you tried to go to mymedicare.gov and voluntarily align to an ACO? You have to have a PhD in physics to figure it out. I have to go to a page where I can search for my doctor. I've got to put a star next to their name. I need to assume that that doctor is in an ACO, and then maybe, maybe if I'm lucky, I'll get enrolled. It is absolutely absurd. The reason I'm so excited about models like ACO Reach with a deep focus on health equity is that now we can actually start to move the debate from this convoluted attribution formula to thoughtful ways for groups to knock on families' doors to say, I can help you coordinate your care while you retain your core Medicare benefits. Now, I love Medicare Advantage. I think it's a brilliant model and there's a lot of good that comes from it, but it cannot be the only way to get coordinated care. And we have to educate consumers and families about the possibilities. So I'm really anxious and excited that we'll start to move away from kind of paternalistic algorithmic models towards real people in the emergency room who ask the patient if they have an active PCP, who have clear needs after discharge, to recommend that they consider joining a Medicare ACO or that there's some warm handoff for someone that could inform them that they have access to services that could help increase their coordination experience. We're not there yet. There are all these rules and constraints about talking and marketing and outreach. But true north will prevail. We have to find a way to connect really thoughtful people to the networks, I should say, to the people who could benefit from their service. And that day is coming. And it'll likely happen in ACO reach first.
2: Well, Anisha, I couldn't agree more. And you said true north will prevail. And that's actually the... Title of our upcoming uh, virtual health equity summit, Population Health Equity, the True North for Value Based Care. And we're so honored to have you participating in that event. And, uh, you know, we've been thinking a lot about health equity, as I know the rest of the industry has. Um, You mentioned ACO reach in your remarks, and that really seems to be the vehicle to which we're finally going to be able to reach a critical mass around health equity and service to underserved populations. Uh, The REACH model has within its payment model design health equity as a bedrock and, and as CMS defined it, the purpose of this new ACO REACH model, which starts next year, is to improve the quality of care for people with Medicare through better care coordination, reaching and connecting healthcare providers and beneficiaries, including those beneficiaries who are underserved. It's a very big focus. And the model participants have to develop and implement a robust health equity plan to identify these underserved communities and implement initiatives to reduce disparities within their beneficiary populations. And it's a huge leap forward in the value movement. And you wrote about this in an article with our good friend Rick Goddard from Lumeris, and you outlined – the four programmatic health equity components in ACO reach. And those components are as follows. The one, to embed health equity into the benchmark. Two, to address health equity and risk adjustment. Three, improve data collection across communities. And then lastly, ensure accountability of addressing health inequities. And a significant number of our podcast listeners out there are ACO reach participants, and they're right now preparing for their required submission of a health equity plan that's going to be due at the beginning of the performance year, uh, currently projected to be sometime in March of next year. Uh, Anish, can you help our listeners better understand the equity components of the ACO REACH program and how this new model is going to be a catalyst for more equitable care outcomes? And then what would be your advice to those REACH ACOs out there listening that are working to establish their health equity strategy and looking for community partnerships to improve their care of underserved populations?
0: Yeah, I'm I'm really grateful that CMS has put operational muscle behind a policy objective to close these challenging uh, gaps that we see across a whole range of measures, whether it be race, ethnicity, uh, gender, I couldn't believe it, but even veteran status, you know, in terms of how we uh, coordinate that care. So uh, let's talk about a few of these components, maybe just to lift up for a moment, Eric, and not not get too detailed. And lifting up for a moment, I would say the need to identify current performance on key measures that networks themselves can define will itself be a catalyst for change. What is that old adage? You can't manage what you can't measure. Well, even I will admit I had not cut the data that we have access to, as I mentioned earlier, from the national CMS side for these underserved communities until it was sort of a priority of the Biden administration to look at it that way. And you see these incredibly challenging disconnects on who gets an annual wellness visit and who gets a care coordination or a transitional care management visit, and so forth. The point here is that chapter one of this program is about looking inward for all the participating networks on what their clinical priorities will be in order to demonstrate progress. So All CMS is saying is publish a plan, and we're going to measure your progress against that plan. But what that plan says is up to you. So we're going to see a wide range, Eric, across the ACO reach model participants on what they wish to be held accountable for. And I think you're going to see some ambitious plans. You might see some you know, layups, and that'll be an interesting dynamic we're all going to comment on in a future podcast. Second, we know that risk adjustment is the best we have, but needs to be better to account for objective conditions that may have a better predictive power on your overall cost of care. So to get started, they lobbed out a first volley, which is we're going to look at patients that live in more underserved neighborhoods and reward them with a slight increase in their per member per month benchmark. But on the other hand, we may pay for that in a budget neutral way by taxing some of those that live in the wealthier. more uh, well served neighborhoods. Not to be accepted on face value that that's the right answer, Eric. It's at least the first foray, and we can iterate. The great thing about CMMI's authorities is that it can iterate faster than rulemaking or some other bureaucratic sludge. So we can work to find more objective ways by starting with the basic principle that we should adjust the benchmark given some of these historical inequities. So that's very exciting. And I think perhaps the hidden treasure, as I just alluded to with health information fiduciaries, is it allows for a little bit more of an open dialogue of what it means for networks to recruit beneficiaries who may not otherwise be in a value-based care model because they will have an economic incentive and an accountability plan associated. So I hope this engine this economic engine of ACO reach will on its own lead to creative approaches to finding the underserved dual eligible populations in communities rural and urban all across America to find their way to this value based care model. And by stepping off of them, you know, only focusing on this sort of algorithmic physician attribution towards this paper based, and I, they call it paper based, Eric, but it could also be basically digitally. Uh, patient enrollment, if you will, voluntary alignment that doesn't require you to go to that crazy mymedicare.gov experience, which still hasn't been fixed five years in. And we can see incredible promise. So I'm hopeful that these uh, policy adjustments in REACH will lead to innovation and creativity that will be okay in the first round, but will iterate and be better in rounds two, three, and four. So look to ACO REACH. For a whole range of goodies, not the least of which is to get underserved populations into better coordinated care models faster than traditional enrollment.
1: Anisha, I, I I agree with you wholeheartedly. I'm excited about ACL Reach, and I think there's amazing potential. You mentioned something about the adjustments to the benchmarks, and so let's talk about this retrospective trend adjustment, the RTA, that's oh, used.
0: Man. <laughs> You're bringing me down, man. You're bringing me down. <laughs>
1: so it's used to adjust the benchmark numbers when the observed expenditures are different than the expected expenditures for that population. All right. So this is the part, the, the hard part, I guess. The, there are concerns in the community with the first performance year of the ACO reach that CMS might erroneously apply a retroactive trend adjustment to the benchmark during reconciliation. I know you and Care Journey, you have conducted analysis to replicate the reference population to see if the data used to calculate that observed and expected expenditures are accurate. I'd love for you to provide our listeners with a brief explanation of the RTA and what the comparison of care journey to CMS calculations showed. And for those ACOs trying to understand this issue as it pertains to their projected benchmark, do we know enough at this point to provide them with any guidance?
0: Yeah, this is uh, you know, I'm very hopeful on a lot of things and and this one is a little more complicated. So, I'm going to be cautiously hopeful, but it will require, you know, a little bit more effort. So, let, let's start with the obvious. Having a prospective benchmark that is understandable, predictable, and one that you can staff up for, right? That's the key. Our ACO members who participate in these models aren't just signing financial agreements. They're building clinical programs, hiring staff, putting in really good faith efforts to make a a model work. And obviously, they take the risk. Some of these are going to fail. Hopefully, more will succeed. So you want that predictability to build your plan. So prospective benchmarks as a policy objective, that's a good thing. MSSP, as you recall, had that kind of retrospective essential true-up period. And so you sort of knew what you had, but you didn't really know what you had. And it probably, in my view, led to underinvestments in the kind of real clinical staff protocols and programming that are needed to make these things successful. The challenge is that CMS also doesn't want to inadvertently reward financial arbitrage. So if it projects an expenditure That was way off, and you could imagine, uh, obviously with the pandemic, the whole mathematical formula had a lot more volatility in it in the last several years than perhaps in a more stable environment where maybe you could do prospective and have a little bit more confidence. CMS didn't want the economic model to result in basically artificial gains into the community that weren't a function of the work done, but rather this arbitrage. So I don't begrudge CMS looking to make an adjustment, and so in the rules, it has the authority to make adjustments plus or minus 1% of the projection. If the actuary says that in fact, overall uh, health inflation is X, we thought it was gonna be Y and therefore we can make adjustments. Well, what did we do? We looked at the projections, we took actual claims experience in uh, 17, 18 and 19, 2017, 18, 19. And then we sort of skipped over 20 and 21 to leap into 2022 and drew a line and said, we're going to just assume an inflation rate of, I believe, something like 16% over that three-year period. And when we came out the other end and we looked at the reference population that CMS had published, in fact, it looked as if the utilization was lower than what the actuaries had projected. So you framed the question as a CMS versus care journey interpretation of the data, and it really wasn't that. It was really uh we both see the same things because it's the same data. The real question, and the reason why I said it's more complicated, is what should the reference population be? Should we be exploring the healthcare inflation rate for all Medicare patients? Should we restrict it like MSSP does? to those uh, Medicare beneficiaries that have at least one qualifying primary care visit, what's called the assignable population. And so there's an ongoing dialogue with CMS to say, we get the policy objective, but is the operation of that implementation of that objective and the assumptions that went into that objective post-pandemic, the right set of assumptions, or can we revisit those assumptions? And so our next round of analysis is about modeling what an alternative reference population might look like. And frankly, to ask the question, if these things are going to normalize over the year anyway, having these quarterly adjustments, which do wreak havoc to some degree on cash flow to fund staff that do programs, might there be a way to kind of constrain financial arbitrage while stabilizing and providing more predictability on? Uh, benchmarks for funding uh, programs. Somewhere in the middle is True North, and we've got to figure that out. And I will say thank you to the team at CMS for embracing in a true spirit of open collaboration an understanding of the truth together so we could all come to some model that makes the most sense of respectful of these two really important priorities. And so we're not there yet, Daniel. There's no answer for me to tell you I've got hope. I'm just I, I believe in the team that's on the ground to look to data-driven approaches to the question. And that's the best we can do now while we work to iterate on questions like reference population and the like.
2: All right, Anish, uh, great response. And, you know, Dan just asked, asked you a very wonky technical question. I want to ask you about something a little bit sexier, and that's uh, AI in healthcare. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know we're hearing a lot now i mean you can watch the social dilemma on netflix and you know in the average layperson now understands the potential implications on machine learning algorithms and how that can impact human behavior and you know you mentioned earlier in your uh, in the very first question that we asked around You know some of the concerns around implicit bias and ai algorithms and you recently at a conference you were speaking at a conference earlier this summer and you said this concern around ai and healthcare you know innovation can only happen at the speed of trust and that's a big statement and most of us in healthcare are already asking for race and ethnicity information, and many of us are now asking for sexual orientation and gender identity information. And without these data points, addressing bias is going to be extremely difficult. Unfortunately, many people in underserved groups don't trust healthcare enough to provide that information. So I wanted to ask you if you could provide your perspective on how we can best develop trust With our patients so they can share information more freely especially as we look to improve outcomes in underserved communities and how can we develop predictive ai and population health that minimizes algorithmic bias and ensures that the model is going to be fair across all socioeconomic demographics and social classes
0: well these are really i wouldn't call them existential but for the tech industry i think it's existential so when you are in an unregulated field like advertising technology, you can essentially run whatever model you want, and we see the results of these algorithms. I think, frankly, the greatest example of all the harms that we're seeing are these—you know—the social spread of of disinformation. You know, to some degree, that's a feature, not a bug, in a system that allows algorithms to run wild if they're optimized for the wrong thing. And and my presumption in a market driven economy. Is there optimized for engagement or clicks or some other proxy for, you know, the more people look at it, the better the algorithm or the model performs. Healthcare cannot tolerate that type of, what for lack of a better term, back to the Hippocratic Oath issue, uh, an, a, an optimization equation that's not really in my best interest, the functional equivalent of social media disinformation scaling. So I believe the industry is in a really important position before regulation mandates it to put in place a set of clear guardrails. There could be process guardrails, like we will check for bias in the output of the algorithm before we put it into production. There could be actual operational guidelines, which is to say we will publish an explainability provision that the model moved because of the following underlying uh, variables, you know, the kind of the result of the model, if you will. And we could also require a bit more provenance to say, here's the original data set on which this model was performed by a number of these key variables. So you have an understanding as to whether or not that looks more like you or not like you when applying that algorithm or that model. So we have an odd dynamic now in that we are under-investing in models in healthcare, because the model developers don't have the healthcare data needed to run them so we have incredibly talented people who are building essentially ai support for organizations that are willing to share the data and i think those approaches will be more successful if we had a clear set of rules as to what we expect these models to do now it is fancy math, and so it sounds cool, artificial intelligence, but think of it like an Excel goal-seek function, where what we're really doing is we're just trying to solve, reverse it. How can we explain X and help us understand Y? And the machine is just running computation to help us answer it, almost like running many, many millions of simulations to answer it. Uh, we need this. We need this to help identify which patients deserve some kind of outreach or care coordination activity when they're otherwise thinking that they're doing fine or they're feeling healthy, but might have a deterioration in their condition. So we're not there yet. I'm working on this. I'm working with the Health Evolution, David Brailler's group, to kind of build a kind of an industry model around this for algorithm development. I'm helping NIST, which is the Commerce Department, build up a national AI, kind of a a best practices approach around this that probably deserves a healthcare chapter. And it's gotta be done multi-stakeholder as a community. This is not gonna be one vendor to rule them all with fancy math that's gonna be better than everybody else. It's gonna have to be a collective goal on how we wanna use these new technologies to make the healthcare system work better.
1: Anish, I love how you ended that the collective goal, collective, a collaborative effort. You know, that's kind of the the vision by which we were founded by Governor Levitt when he started the Institute for Advancing Health Value. And I just, I love that, uh, that that's how you work is that you want the industry to collaborate and develop these solutions together. And I want to wrap up our conversation today, just with a, we've got time for a rapid response to a question. I'm interested in the concept of precision health, which focuses on preventing disease before it starts using the latest technological advances to develop the tools to do that. Uh, Do you think we'll ever get to the point where we're able to create personalized care pathways by leveraging genomic sequencing, AI, or biometric data from wearables? And given this potential for precision-based care in a population health model, how does that align with evidence-based care that treats all patients the same?
0: I am bullish and I am confident we'll get there. It's gonna be a mixture of tech but a lot of process, which is why value-based care muscles matter. And I will just make the simple statement. If each of us followed the clinical guidance for our conditions, without even additional genomics analysis, we would probably save, again, two to three percentage points in the overall healthcare inflation rate. And that feels to me like a big enough number that would actually move a lot of the angst we have about healthcare costing and eating up our budget to more of a, we've got a very effective and efficient industry that's unleashing the innovation potential of the country to compete for the jobs and industries of the future. I'll end on this note, because you said quickly, I wanna thank Governor Levitt. I am grateful that there are leaders from both sides of the aisle that come together on big issues. And as President Obama used to say, most of Washington fights within the 40-yard line, but the media has it sound like we're on like war footing every minute. We're a lot more in line with where we want to go and about focus on execution than we are about having diverging views about the future of healthcare. I'm grateful that Governor Levin has been such a friend, and ally. And I'm excited about the work you guys do at Western Governors to democratize access to information. So thank you very much for having me. And I look forward to future discussions.
2: Well, thank you, Anish. We have really enjoyed our conversation today. And it's been an honor to spend time with you. And thank you for your leadership and industry as we move to value-based care.
0: Thanks, guys.
1: Yeah, thank you, Anish. Always a pleasure.